Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. I almost forgot who I was for a second. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Yeah. There's Jerry. Or is she really there? I don't know. I don't even know anymore. Because it just occurred to me, we're doing a show on uh, TV show fan theories, and we have our own little fan theory here that Jerry doesn't exist. Yeah, that's true. That's a fan theory. Which is sort of a common thread in a lot of these, is either like, oh, they were really dead, or you know, or they didn't exist to begin with. Right. And so we've heard from people for years that think that Jerry's made up. I love it. Yes. Because they're right. We're, we're not saying. No. Actually, Jerry's totally real. Anyone or who's is ever... she? <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. So I was going through the internet looking for think pieces, essays on why people come up with fan theories or what about fan theories make them, you know, make shows better. Couldn't find anything. No, I think the answer is obvious. I think that's why I couldn't find anything too. People like just to, have time on their hands. <laughs> that's not what I was going to say. Oh, what are you going to say? I was going to say that it takes something that's already pretty enjoyable and mm-hmm. adds entirely new dimensions and depth to it. It yeah. takes something familiar and you can go back and rewatch it through different lens now. Yeah. And you have time on your hands. Right. It's definitely not something that super busy people do, <laughs> you know? No. And then I also was like, maybe I should just calm down. We don't have to explain everything. We can just have fun sharing fan theories. That's what we're going to do. It's like a summer break one. Yeah, this feels like one of those. I'm, we're both drunk. Sure. Pretty drunk. <laughs> just kidding. Kids out there, we're just joking. Should we just get right into these? Yes. Some of these are going to be shorter. Others are going to be a little longer. And we're just going to kind of jump around, right? Should we start with the the granddaddy or end with the granddaddy? Uh, Well, is the granddaddy to you? um, Say by the will. No. (laughs) You like that one, though? Yeah. And I thought maybe if I said it. Yeah, I think we'll start with. Saved by the Bell. I don't know why I thought if I said it really fast. <laughs> right. Only I would know what you were saying. Um, we'll start with Saved by the Bell, and we'll finish with the one that I know you're talking about. Okay, cool. That's very um, clickbaity, I know, but so one you won't believe the last one. <laughs> right. One of the things that um, is really hard to do when it comes up when when it comes to fan theories we should say i guess we should define a fan theory as basically yeah. it's where um somebody who uh likes a show says hey you know this show that you think means this or is about all this uh-huh. it's actually this is what's going on almost all the time it's just somebody's idea but the the Part of the backbone of a fan theory is that it has to hold up in just about every circumstance. Yeah, and I'll get one out of the way quickly as a bad example. Okay. Because to me, a bad fan theory is uh, murder she wrote. She was really a serial killer because, you, you know, you never found out what happened to her husband and all these people are dying around her. I like that one. Yeah, but it's just too easy. It's not like, to me, a good fan theory is one where you can say, and this happened, and look at this, right, and right. what about this, okay. and what about this. So I know what you mean, and yes, you, a fan theory doesn't have to do that, or else it's just some schmo saying something somewhere. Yeah. But Murder, She Wrote has a couple of things to back that up. <laughs> Besides the husband and the well, murders, what is The it? husband, I think, is whatever. But but the point that I've seen here or there, number one, is Jessica Fletcher is a murder author, a yes. murder mystery authoress, and she, murders go, follow her everywhere she goes, right? Uh-huh. Think about the last time you stumbled upon a murder. <laughs> well, that's just called TV. Okay, so that's one thing. Hold on. <laughs> and then secondly, even when she travels, she stumbles upon new murders. But more to the point, in her little town of Cabot Cove, a population 3,500. Yeah. A significant number of the, say, 274 episodes of Murder, she wrote, took place there. If... Even 200 of mm-hmm. those murders happened in a town of 3,500. Yeah. It would be the murder capital of the world, percentage-wise, per capita. So I see what you're saying by the fact that she's a writer. It's not like she's a detective. 
Mm-hmm. Like you can't say, boy, the A team were always getting in these crazy adventures. Like they were hired to each week. Yeah, they were seeking it out. Uh, she just so happens I, okay. to be sucked into it. All right. She just happens to be there, right? <laughs> I've never seen that at TV show either, so that probably has something to do with it. What? <laughs> never seen Murder, She Wrote. Shock. Because I was a 13-year-old boy, not a well, 65-year-old person. It's even better now. Oh, really? Yeah. You're re-watching it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's on Netflix and I think Prime. Wow. Oh, yeah, man. It's good. Check it out. And I'm not saying like, oh, Murder, She Wrote's good. I'm a hipster. I've been watching Murder, She Wrote for years <laughs> and years now, pal. Yeah. You don't have a beard? No. Um, but but hold on. I yeah. think I want to extend this for a second. Uh, you raise a very good point, And I feel like I defended Murder, She Wrote with that same point that a fan theory has to have meat on its bones. Yes. It can't be an offhanded thing. It's prove what you just said. Prove why Jessica Fletcher is a serial killer. Well, that's, that, they, there's a couple of them. It's a little thin, granted. Yeah. But there's something to back it up, which makes it a decent fan theory. Not the best, but a decent one. The other thing is, it's really difficult to pinpoint the origin of fan theories. Oh, yeah, like, who did this first? Yeah, who came up with this idea? What, loser? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one for you. Uh-huh. So we were going to talk about the Saved by the Bell fan theory. and Boy, People are just like, Nervous with anticipation about that one now. As far back as I can tell, it looks like a person, a writer on the website Cracked, Cracked's website, uh, a writer named, um, man, I lost their name, Logan Trent, uh-huh. in 2012 wrote a post uh, called Saved by the Bell, A Conspiracy Theory. Um, oh, so he originated this one? As far as I can tell, he gives zero credit to anybody else. And the way that the post is written, it Uh really comes across like he is Uh laying out his argument himself. So it's possible. And if, if, if you had this idea prior to 2012 and you're not Logan Trent, let us know. But I'm bestowing Logan Trent with the origin of the Saved by the Bell fan theory, which is one of the best. Yeah, and um, big shout out to Cracked and uh, Mental Floss and our own article and uh, who else? It was Me TV had a good one. Yeah, um, Paste Magazine yeah, had Paste. one. Uh, there's there's a lot of good fan theory uh, articles out there. All right, so at long last, Saved by the Bell, and I like this one, and I don't I don't remember watching this show at all. What? But I, I know these characters and the gist, so I had to have watched it at some point. You didn't watch Saved by the Bell? No, nah, it wasn't. That wasn't in my wheelhouse. I guess not. I was I a think little older it. teenage boy right. slash college. Um, well, they had Saved by the Bell the college years. Did they? <laughs> Just for you. Uh, but I do know these characters, so it had to have absorbed into me somehow. Okay. Um, so here's the deal. Pre-Saved by the Bell, this I did not know. Um, there was a TV show. Was it called Good Morning, Miss Bliss? Yes, and it was unbearably bad. So you saw that too? Yeah. So the idea of this show is there's this boy named Zach. This is in Indiana. Not just Zach. Zach Morris. Yeah, the Zach. Played by Mark Paul Gossler. Right. Yeah. Um, this was in Indiana, of course, not California. And he was a troublemaker, and there was a teacher named... Miss Bliss, who was super smart and always thwarted him. She was, uh, what's the name of the lady who was in the original Parent Trap, played the two twins, Haley Mills? Yeah. Her, it was her. Oh, okay. Apparently, Not like, bad. when you sign a contract with Disney as a, a child, yeah, they done. own you for life. <laughs> um, he has a couple of friends named uh, Mikey and Nikki. Uh, they're always putting him in his place. Uh, he has a brother. His parents are divorced. And by all accounts, Zach Morris and Good Morning Miss Bliss is a bit of a schlub who's always sort of getting his comeuppance from other people. Yeah, kind of a loser. Yeah. Basically the opposite of Zach Morris in Saved by the Bell. Did they ever say Zach Attack? Uh, or did I just make that up? No, I think so. Okay. I think there was a t-shirt even that said that. <laughs> so flash forward, and how many years later was this? A couple. So Good Morning Miss Bliss goes off the air. I get the feeling it wasn't very popular, or they wouldn't have rebooted it right. as Saved by the Bell. Right. They would have just, you know. Kept it going. Exactly. Uh, so Saved by the Bell comes along, and now Zach is at Bayside in California. Right. He's Mr. Everything. He's, as this article points out, 
He's the most popular kid in school and excels in everything. Sports, music, casual, racism, whatever. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the Logan Trent's wording. Uh, he's the alpha in his circle of friends. Mikey and Nikki are gone. Yeah, they're just gone. No explanation. Right. And there's no explanation for any of this, like right. how he got to California. But it's, it's the same character, right? It's the exact same character, but there are some huge, huge changes. Uh, like at his core, he is a different person. Mm-hmm. Actually, not necessarily at his core, but as far as how he's treated and viewed by his peers and everyone else, yeah, he's he, the difference is night and day. He's not a dweeb anymore. He's not a loser. He's he's a total winner. He's Zach Attack. Um, as Logan Trent points out, like um, if he were to miss a, a quiz. Rather than fail, he would convince the teacher to hold a bake off and then he would win the bake off by cheating. Yeah, like that's, good. that was how like he went through life. And also very notably, um, his parents were no longer divorced. They right. were married and he didn't have a brother. He was an only child and was beloved by all, right? Yeah. He had, uh, I think Slater was, went from his rival to his, um, sort of his pal, but his, you know, his Second. wing, yeah, his wingman. Right. Uh, Screech was around in both, but I think he was sort of Screech in both, right? Yeah. He didn't change much. Right. Like, yeah, Screech has always been Screech. What can you do He'll with that? He'll stab guy? you in a bar. <laughs> All right, so what's the big reveal? What's the fan theory? So the fan theory is that Saved by the Bell is the daydream fantasy of Zach Morris, who's actually living in Indiana. back in Indiana <laughs> at John F. Kennedy Jr. High. And that the like whole, it. it's great, man. And that the whole, um, the whole premise of this, this fan theory is revealed through the theme song. Right. Right? So in the theme song, it, the, the, the theme song talks about like how harried Zach is. Yeah. Well, it's all first person, right? But you assume that it's talking about Zach because the whole show is, it revolves around Zach. He's the narrator. Yeah. Um, and, it, he's having like a lot of trouble like getting ready and he gets out to the bus just in time to see it fly by and the teacher's going to pop a test and he knows he's in a mess uh-huh. and his dog ate all his homework. And if you actually watch the show, you, nothing ever gets Zach. He's untouchable. Yeah. So in the theme song, it says, it's all right because I'm saved by the bell, right? Yes. Which... This fan theory suggests that once once he settles in either settles into class and starts daydreaming, or gets home at night and starts dreaming, uh-huh. he can go off to Bayside where he's the biggest winner around. That is the bell, right? So, the the fact that these lyrics, by the time I grab my books and I give myself a look, I'm at the corner just in time to see the bus, bus fly, fly by, by. <laughs> and then eventually riding low in my chair so she uh, she won't know I'm there, meaning the teacher, right? This all is Zach in Indiana. Right. It describes a different person. It doesn't make any sense that these lyrics, if you had not known that that was a show that existed, right. and all you knew was Saved by the Bell, these lyrics don't make any sense. Exactly. But they do if it is all a fantasy in his imagination. Sadly, it also makes sense if you think that the producers hired the composer before they were really aware of what the show was going to be like. And that's what the composer came up with lyrics wise. <laughs> yeah. It's not nearly as fun. Well, the other thing I like about fan theories is that they are almost 100% not real. Right. It's just fans having fun. Yeah. But I do like the idea to imagine like some subversive writer that's right. like, oh, well, here's what we'll do. Right, exactly. This is all an elaborate fantasy yeah. of this Zach guy. I've got one other thing that the I think the uh, cracked article points out. If not, someone else came up with it later. They pointed out that Zach has the power to stop time and <laughs> and address the camera. Like he breaks the fourth wall fairly oh, regularly. Sure. And um, he can just stop time and, and move around within this frozen time, which also... I mean, that's yeah. a weird thing for somebody to be able to do if they're not in the middle of their own daydream. Yeah, or nightdream. Love it, man. That's a good one. Um, and, you know, uh, things like Mikey and Nikki disappeared. Um, at one point, uh, Kelly is in love with him, and then she just is gone with no explanation. Yeah, he... Like he people kind of pop in and out sometimes with no explanation at all. I think Kelly dumped him, and then, like, all of a sudden, she's gone. And she was, like, one of the characters throughout the entire Saved by the Bell. Right. 
Um, and then she's just gone once she dumps Zach. <laughs> he's he's terrible. He's really bad at school, but he got a fifteen oh two in the SAT. Like all this stuff is like dream, dream stuff. Right. Uh, that, well, that's another point that Logan Trent makes is that a fifteen oh two is literally impossible. You, like you can't score a fifteen oh two on the SAT. Yeah, it's fifteen hundred, right? It's yeah. So it's all it's even more evidence that all this is made up by uh, apparently a not so smart kid. Man. So that's Saved by the Bell, man. You want to take a break and then get, think, get back think, to it? Yeah, I think so. I could do this all day. All right. Uh, all right, we'll go through a couple of quicker ones here. The Fresh Prince is dead. Yeah. Kind of really don't need to say anything else, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the uh, the TV's theme song, where he talks about getting in a fight, and that's the whole reason he's sent to Bel, Bel- Air. Yeah, The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, it's a TV show from 1990 to 96. Mm-hmm. And the rap that Will Smith... The, the real life Will Smith actually plays a character named Will Smith. Right. And he talks about getting in a fight and getting sent off to Bel Air to get out, you know, to get him away from the rough neighborhood in, uh, what, Philly? Right. West Philadelphia. <laughs> Born and raised. Right. And, um, so the theory is that he was actually killed during this fight. Right. And, um, everything else is, you know, his, uh, journey in the afterlife. Yeah. The cab that picks him up to take him in Bel Air, the rare cab. Uh, is supposedly God or some sort of um, ethereal figure that's taking him to the afterlife, which is Bel Air. Uh-huh. <clears throat> His parents are like basically non-existent, but they show up a couple of times. Uh, this is explained away by the fan theory as his parents visiting their son's grave. Right, like which once I think a year. is pretty awesome. Yeah. And then um, Boys to Men apparently showed up at one point, but they were like a heavenly choir. Oh. I don't remember that episode. Huh. So that, put all that together, Fresh Prince is dead. That's right. What do you want to do next? Should we do, do, uh, the, the two of them from Gilligan's Island? Yeah, the drug one's super lame. Yeah, I thought so too. There's this one theory that the, the, and this one's, you're right, it's just dumb, that, that Mr. Howell on Gilligan's Island paid Gilligan and the skipper to take him out to sea to do a drug deal, which is why he has a trunk load of cash, a Just, trunk full of cash. Right. Ginger's got a drug habit. Marianne's a federal agent. This just sounds like, you know, it's lame. like uh, someone smoked some weed and came up with like, like someone said, hey, what's your first idea of what Gilligan's Island could have been other than what it was? And they went, oh, drug thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think you nailed it. But... There's a better fan theory for Gilligan's Island. Agreed. That Gilligan's Island is hell. That this, like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, takes place in the afterlife, but not in heaven, in hell. Or at least in purgatory, that the, the, the Minnow's shipwreck um, caused everyone on board to drown. And that in hell, each one of the characters represents one of the seven deadly sins. Ginger's lust. Marianne's envy. Professor is pride. Thurston Howell, of course, is greed. Hmm. Uh, Mrs. Howell, I've seen as sloth. And gluttony. Seen that too. I've also seen Skipper as either gluttony or wrath. Wrath makes a lot more sense. And then but, Gilligan yeah. is sloth or is Satan himself. Yeah. And one of the giveaways for Gilligan being Satan, well, there's two of them. One is that he's always wearing a red shirt. Oh, well. So obviously Satan. Because <laughs> Satan wore a red rugby shirt. Right. Uh, and then uh, he's always, although it seems like it's always uh, accidental, he's always thwarting their plans. Like every time they get some something going to get off of the island, right. Gilligan is the one who somehow screws it up and they're stuck there again. So he's keeping them in hell. And this one actually has legs. Yeah. Apparently Sherwood Schwartz, the creator of Gilligan's Island... Uh, in a book confirmed that they did, it was his idea that they did stand for the seven deadly sins. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So there you go. One of the rare fan theories that actually was true. 
And I'm I wonder sure whoever that, whoever thought of that was like, no, yeah, I was right. Well, that makes me wonder if somehow it got out or something. Maybe, or he was retroactively just being like, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> uh, Sherwood Schwartz. Here's a quick uh, Spock from Star Trek one that I kind of liked. We'll do both of the Star Trek ones. How about that? Okay. Um, and I'm um, uh, on record as not having watched Star Trek. Yeah, me, me neither. But uh, in Star Trek Six, the undiscovered country, the undiscovered country. <laughs> I'm sorry, people are so mad at me right now, <laughs> Trekkies. Yeah. Uh, and an ancestor of mine maintained that when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And that was Spock in that movie. And the source of that was Sherlock Holmes himself, from the Sign of Four, from an 1890. Uh, uh, book, and so the idea here is that Spock is related to Sherlock Holmes. It's a little weird. How about that? But I could see it. I mean, they're both pretty rational. Yeah. Well, Sherlock Holmes, he loved his speed balls. I don't think Spock was ever <laughs> into those. No, he was more evolved. You know, Sherlock Holmes loves speed balls, though, don't you? I did not. Doesn't surprise me. It surprised me at first. Really? Yeah. So there's another um, Star Trek one. I love this one. That. Andy Griffith is the pre-apocalyptic world that leads into Star Trek. And this one is pretty awesome. So it's based on a Star Trek episode, Chuck Miri, M-I-R-I, like Siri, but with an M. (laughs) Yeah. And um, in this episode, the Star Trek crew beams down to Earth, and it's very obvious it's Mayberry, but it's like a post-apocalyptic Mayberry. Mm-hmm. And it's peopled entirely by kids. And the reason why it's peopled entirely by kids is because some disease has broken out where um, you die at the onset of puberty. Yeah, and it's, uh, well, it, it is Mayberry because it is Mayberry. It's literally the same backlot <laughs> that they shot both shows at. Yeah. And they just outfitted Mayberry to be post-apocalyptic right down to like Floyd's Barbershop. Yeah, but I think they just scratched out Floyd. They scratched out the F and it just said Lloyd. Oh, did it? I don't know. I think it said Floyd's. Did it really? Yeah. Oh, it's that on the nose, huh? I think so. Oh, this one's great. <laughs> this is a great fan theory. Does that seal it for you then? Well, there's another part too that um the kid who played Barney Fife's cousin Virgil, uh-huh. Uh he actually appears in this Star Trek episode. What? Yeah, so it's full circle. Gene Roddenberry was like, I'm going to come up with a fan theory. No one knows what those are yet, but I'm going to lay it down for him decades from now. Pretty when good. When the internet comes around. I don't know what that is, but it's going to be something. I'm Gene Roddenberry. You know, the uh, the beginning of Andy Griffith when they're, you know, walking down to the lake and he skipped the stones on the lake? Yeah. It's like right in the Hollywood Hills. Is that right? Yeah. My yeah. brother drove me up there one time and... It's like, this look familiar? I'm like, uh-uh. And he started whistling the theme song, and I was like, no. Wow. He said, yeah. And he was like, the Batcave's like over there. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, and it sort of, you know, killed my dreams. Well, same with MASH, too. That's like the Hollywood Hills. Or yeah, not Hollywood Hills. Malibu. It's, um, is it Malibu? Well, like the mountains behind Malibu. Right. Um, when you fly into L.A., yeah. you can, and you're looking for it, you're like, oh, I totally see that. The, what we're talking about is the helicopter in the... Opening um, montage for Mash, yeah, um, was like it, it's supposedly flying through Korea, but sure. it's actually yes, it's California where they're yeah. shooting, which is way cheaper to shoot. Yeah, we shot. I mean, I shot a TV commercial over there, and I think we talked about this before. There's, you know, one of the jeeps is still out there. Oh no, I don't it's, remember it's like that. Rusted out and overgrown with weeds, huh? And um, but yeah, it's like an old army jeep. Yeah, there are a couple of little remnants. Jamie Farr's still out there. Like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Thanks for visiting. You need anyone today? Can I get a lift back? <laughs> you need a uh, background? I'll be. I'm cheap. That's terrible. Is he still around? I'm supposed to know this. He's like my hometown's favorite son. Oh, was he really from there? From Toledo, yeah. Is that why they did wrote that into the show? Yeah, and he's always talking about Tony Paco's, which is a real place. It's oh great. yeah, I knew all that, but I didn't know if it was. Uh... Yeah, no, Jamie Farr is definitely from Toledo. Oh, okay, well he's still they, alive. They too. never let you forget it. Yeah, he's 82. Hey, Jamie Farr. Godspeed, sir. Um, what else we got? So, 
Um, this one's one of my favorites. This is a good one. Garfield. Oh yeah. Is dying alone in an abandoned house. Yeah. And everything that you've seen in all except I believe six of the Garfield strips, all of them that have been going on since 1977, mm-hmm. is a, a the hallucination of a dying, starving cat <laughs> in an abandoned house. Yeah, I was way into Garfield. Yeah, Garfield was great. Bought the books. Yeah. Garfield and Bloom County were my two biggies. I was never into Bloom County. Oh, man. I loved it. Um, I, I did love Garfield, though. I, I mean, it was a little... Bloom County was a little more advanced, I think. Sure. And it's humor. Right. Um, which I still got, but Garfield was like kind of perfect for a 10-year-old Chuck. It was perfect. <laughs> so what you're talking about is in October of 1989, uh, Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put out six strips in a row that are not funny. No, they're actually kind of unsettling. Yeah, very bleak. And if you go and look at these strips, you can find them online, obviously. Um, it's Garfield alone in an abandoned house, and it's really heavy yeah, and so awful. Garfield wakes up in the first strip, and no one's around, and he's starting to get a little panicked. And then it just kind of continues on, and and his um, panic continues to build over the course of the six strips. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, in the last one, I believe, uh, he wakes up, and John and Odie are there, and everything's back to normal. He's so happy. Yeah. But leading up to that point, in strip like three, four, five, it's it's getting a little freaky. Yeah. And um, again, like you said, there's nothing funny about it. It's not. It wasn't intended to be funny. It was intended to scare. And the the idea is is that what we're seeing in these six strips are the the actual reality of Garfield, and that everything else he finally manages to go back to his basically dying fever dream yeah. that featured John and Odie. Yeah, but well, they disappear though in that strip too. At the end. Yeah, like they appear, and then like he goes to give them food, and then they like disappear. And he's alone again. At the end of that sixth strip? Yeah. Oh, okay. So he, he's hallucinated them. I gotcha. And then is alone okay. and abandoned. So that's why, okay, right. So then that backs up that yeah. whole idea that yeah, that they're just a hallucination because they're demonstrated as a, an hallucination in that six series strip. Yeah, and he- Six strip series. That was, his intent was very much to do something sad and different. And I think he heard quite a bit from the fans. Sure. Like, what is going on? Right. And then apparently he he kind of laughed at the idea when someone said, "Hey, uh, you realize what people think that this is all a big hallucination? Like every other strip you've drawn is a hallucination of this dying cat." Right. And he laughed about it, but like, what what else were people supposed to think? Yeah, that he just got really heavy and and weird for six strips. And I think the other thing that was so off putting about it too was it it resolves, or there there is no resolution. I, I think, think on so. that, that seventh day, the Sunday one just picks up like everything's totally normal and it never happened, which makes it even <laughs> more unsettling. Yeah. And then Chuck, there's a, uh, there's a clear, I don't know if it was a reference to it or coincidence or whatever, but there's this, um, animated movie called, uh, Allegro Non Tropo and there's a segment in it. Um, what's the name of the segment? Uh, Vals Triste. About a cat that turns out to be a ghost cat. Have you ever seen it? No. It's very good. Oh, yeah? Haunting. But it sort of parallels this Garfield story. Very much. So um, whether or not it was purposeful, we don't know that part, right? Or did Jim Davis like discount that, too? I've never heard uh, whether or not he discounts that. Ah. Yeah. But that's definitely... Go check out the Garfield strips. Just Gar- just look up like Garfield dead or dying or whatever, yeah. and it'll bring them up. But um, also, just I'm sure it's on YouTube. Just look up Vals V A L S E Triste T R I S T E, and uh, it will it'll get to you. It's very sad. Uh, and you should plug your favorite thing uh, ever, which is Garfield without Garfield. Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Which in that case, it was John who was just crazy and hallucinating, right? Yeah, you could make a pretty good case that John was out of his mind when you take Garfield out of any given strip. And John is just, and it's just John, like t- yeah, shouting out loud, or, like he's just like f- like putting his head down on the counter. Good stuff. Yeah, I forgot about that. You want to take a break? Yeah, Come back? we'll take a break and go through another couple of quickies, and then the big daddy. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. 
Did you see this Breaking Bad one? Yeah. Um, this one has spoilers for Breaking Bad and a little bit of The Walking Dead. So if you haven't seen that, tune out. But uh, there is a theory that's actually, I think, kind of cool, because I love both shows, Breaking Bad and Walking Dead. Right. Uh, that the the blue meth from Breaking Bad is what caused the, the, the zombie uh, outbreak in The Walking Dead. Yeah, and not bad. Yeah, but I mean, it seems like they're totally unconnected until <laughs> you start digging in there. That's right. When you look at season one, the character of Glenn. Uh, hey, shout out to Stephen Yun. He's a listener of stuff you should know. Yeah. What up, dog? Hopefully, still is. I mean, not anymore. <laughs> uh, he drives a, a red Dodge Challenger in that uh, first season, um, which looks kind of like Walter White's car that he eventually ends up with. And then in Breaking Bad, when Walter White returns that Dodge, mm-hmm. he takes it back, and the manager's, uh, the dealership's general manager is named Glenn. A little thin. Eh. The the best one is uh, comes in season two, if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. You take it, buddy. Because uh, why you didn't watch either one of these shows? No, no, I did. <laughs> okay, I saw all of Breaking Bad, and I've seen. Uh, I can't remember how far. I've seen pretty far into um, Walking Dead. I'm behind on Walking Dead by like one season. Oh. I need to go back. Catch up. Yeah. Uh, anyway, season two, Daryl, uh, played by Norman Reedus, is um, trying to take the fever down on T-Dog, who's another character. Right. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> it's me saying T-Dog. <laughs> Uh, so his brother Merle, he has, um, he has like this bag of drugs basically. So he looks through the bag to see if there's, there's anything that can help bring the fever down. And there is that blue crystal meth from, uh, Breaking Bad in his bag. Yeah. So that's a, a good little hint. Yep. And then, uh, before the zombie apocalypse, Merle, his brother, uh, was actually a drug dealer and he described in one episode his, uh, supplier, was, quote, a janky little white guy who threatened him with a handgun and said, I'm going to kill you, B-word. Yeah. And that very much sounds like uh, Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, the only way he could have gotten it across more is if he'd mentioned fat stacks or something. <laughs> right. You know? That would have been, like, super on the nose, though. So that's, that's a pretty fun theory. It is. Obviously. Meth equals death, everybody. That's right. Especially blue. Well, the one thing I didn't get was like, what are like all those people on meth? But then I thought, no, maybe just a certain amount, and then they infected other people right. with their zombie juice. Yeah. Uh, okay, I got one. All right. This is this is an old one, but I think it's a good one. The Flintstones and yeah. the Jetsons take place at the exact same time. It's a good one. That the Flintstones are not prehistoric. They're actually set in a post-apocalyptic future mm-hmm. and you'd say that doesn't make any sense well, does it the author i think this came from mental floss points out why would some cave people create record players with whatever they had on hand no one in prehistoric times knew what a record player was but if you were living in the post-apocalyptic times you would want to be able to listen to records because they'd already been invented. Yeah. So you would figure out how to make a bird put its beak on a record and use that instead. Why do they celebrate Christmas in prehistoric times? Good question. Why do why does the music in the Flintstones, any popular music is always like fifties like English British invasion type music. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Twitch twitch. Yeah. Um why do they have a, a banking system? Yeah. Set up. Yeah. That's fairly complex. It is. Why are these animals talking? Well, that's just weird. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you can, like, place that at the feet of George Jetson. The, uh, the thing about the Jetsons, though, is supposedly they are living up in, uh, it's not Cloud City, is Orbit it? Orbit City. Orbit City. Um, which is supposedly built in the clouds above a smog line, which is where the Flintstones live below the smog line. And allegedly, the thing that divides them really more than anything is income. 
Yeah. That the Jetsons are wealthy and part of the ones that can survive and live up in the clean air. The Flintstones are part that have to scrape by with whatever they can find back here on Earth. Well, and that George and Fred mirror one another in that Fred labors at this, uh, I mean, I don't even know what you call that, like a- A quarry. A quarry, yeah. Mm-hmm. With Mr. Slate. Um, whereas George works at Spacely Rockets, and it says here in this article, works for a total of about nine hours a week, and then robots and computers handle everything else. That's supposedly how our life is supposed to be right now, but we're not doing it right. Oh, really? Yeah, and now robots are just stealing everyone's job, but we don't have anything to show for it except for joblessness. Huh. But the bad kind. Right. Um, there was a movie called The Jetsons Meet the Flintstones, and in that very movie, George Jetson visits the past and has a little kind of a throwaway comment when he sees green grass and he says that it's something he remembers from ancient history. Right. So that one kind of undermines the whole idea. Oh, I don't know. Well, if he's saying that he, that remembers, he remembers it, it from it. ancient history. Oh, I see that part. Yeah. Like there was an apocalypse and there is no grass. But if he visits the past... I don't know. Is this falling apart? Yeah. Where we talk about it? It undermines that one. Huh. All right. Remember the Great Gazoo? What was up with that guy? Yeah. Well, this is where Stuff You Should Know's devolved to. (laughs) (laughs) Remember the Great Gazoo? What was up with that guy? (laughs) Uh, The whole Christmas thing is weird to me, that the Flintstones would celebrate Christmas when they were clearly, supposedly, before the birth of Christ. Sure. As being in prehistoric times. Right. It, no, it doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of stuff the Flintstones didn't make sense about. Um, how about the Scooby-Doo-in? I thought this was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and not Scooby-Doo. See, this is the difference between a good fan theory and a bad one. Mm-hmm. Bad one, those Scooby and Shaggy are always stoned. Right. Because, look, they're bumbling and they're always hungry. For Scooby snacks. For Scooby snacks. Mm-hmm. Bad fan theory. Good fan theory, Scooby-Doo takes place... After the world economy has shattered. Right. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And there's a lot to it. Right? Yeah. So the idea is that these guys are driving around and if you really look at the places that they visit, everything's abandoned and run down. Always. Like abandoned amusement park, abandoned uh-huh. ski resort, abandoned yep. everything. Um, and not only are these places abandoned, they're, they're populated by people who are squatting. Basically, in these abandoned places, they live in the abandoned place. Uh-huh. and um, The bad guys are. Yeah. And they have no means to support themselves other than by carrying out these weird, veiled crimes that they, they try to dress up as something otherworldly, which suggests that they're geniuses. Right. So very, very yeah. smart people living in squalor uh-huh. <laughs> and are, are jobless. Yeah. Uh, was this cracked? Yeah. So it says that uh, out of the 27 villains in the original um, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, run, 23 of the 27 are motivated by monetary gain via theft, smuggling, or land speculation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and like you said, if these people are geniuses, why are they, you know, like I'm going to squat in this abandoned mansion right. so I can gain ownership of it? Right. It's all very strange. Yeah, and they point out that the, the talents that these people have – are um indicate a, a very wide variety of um specific schooling right yeah two were phd's two were, or three were phd's two were lawyers one had an ability to produce forged paintings one could repair boats one was a magician right the stuntman so these are highly skilled highly specialized um professions that these people are trained in or capable of doing but yet they're out of work and they're pulling off these very elaborate schemes rather than just having a job in their profession. Yeah, and even Scooby-Doo, like when they go into a nice vacation spot, it's mm-hmm. it's run down and abandoned. It's like Soviet-level vacation spot. Yeah, pretty much. So I, th- I thought this was a great one. It was good. At, at the very least, they had some reason to not just have it be like normal society right. that they were living in and like they would... You know, like it, it, when you go back and look at them, they, they were weird. Uh, yeah, weird settings for shows. Really sparsely populated. 
because it's animated. There's no reason to do that. Yeah. I could see if you're like, oh, we don't have much of a budget, so right. we got to go shoot at this abandoned amusement right. park. But they, if, like, if they are at a restaurant, they're almost invariably the only people there. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. It's like a really empty series. It's cool. It makes it a little more haunting. I like it. You ready for the last one? All right. I think we've waited well long enough. This one is based on the television hospital procedural drama St. Elsewhere. Right. Which uh, St. Elsewhere, if you watched it or even if you didn't and you just are a fan of like famous endings of TV series, mm-hmm. St. Elsewhere was very famous for its ending in that um, also famous for having a bunch of like big stars early oh, on yeah. in their careers. Yeah. Howie Mandel, Denzel. Yeah. Uh, Ed Begley. Yeah. Pegs. A lot of other people. <laughs> um, but it very famously ended with, um, at the very end, the uh, it showed a shot of the hospital with the snow falling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you pull back and you realize that that was actually uh, a snow globe held by a boy. Right. And it's it, kind of mind-blowing. It's like, oh, my God. Right, because, again, this like, is was like it real? if you watched ER or uh, anything, Scrubs, what any normal show about hospital life. Yeah. And it's about hospital life. Mm-hmm. That's what St. Elsewhere was about. Yeah. You know, it was weird and quirky, but it was, it, it, it was about a hospital. So the a idea drama. that the last scene of, uh, I think six seasons. Yeah. Six years, 137 episodes about a ho- life at a hospital and the characters that inhabited and worked at this hospital. Yeah. W- the hospital's in a snow globe. This is totally out of left field, right? Yeah. To make it even weirder, in walks, who had up to this point been the uh, director of uh, surgery, I think, um, Donald Westfall. He's the medical director of St. Elsewhere. Yeah. He walks in. He's clearly not a doctor. He's dressed not, he's not dressed like one. He's like a construction guy. Yeah. The way he's talking, he's super like blue collar all of a sudden. And he walks into the room where the boy holding the snow globe, whose name we will find out is Tommy Westfall. Um, he is Donald Westfall's son. In the series, saying elsewhere. Yeah, he had been on the show, but he was never like a big character. Or no, anything. and he he had autism, and uh, in walks Donald Westfall, who's now a construction worker, and says he's talking to his own father. He's like, I don't get it, pops. He just sits around and looks at that snow globe all day. I wonder what he's thinking in his head, which suggests pretty strongly <laughs> yeah. that everything <laughs> about saying elsewhere, all 137 episodes took place in the mind of Tommy Westfall, this boy with autism, who's sitting there staring at his snow globe. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's it's really, it was even more on the nose than that. He actually says, I don't understand this autism thing, Pop. He's my son. I talk to him. I don't even know if he can hear me. He sits there all day long in his own world, staring at that toy. What's he thinking about? Right. Like, they didn't need to say all that. They should have just, to me, showed that. And showed him coming in as a construction guy, right? And maybe just looked long, longingly at the sun. Sure, but he's kind of like, "You get it, everyone." Eh, eh. <laughs> so America anyway. is sitting there like, "What?" Yeah. At the time, this is what nineteen eighty-eight, I think, when it went off the yeah, air. All of America was just like, "What just <laughs> happened?" That's really weird. Uh-huh. But then in two thousand two, it started to get even weirder, right? Yeah. Because there's a TV writer named uh, Dwayne McDuffie, and he wrote a post called Six Degrees of Saint Elsewhere," and he points out, "Wait, everybody, if all of Saint Elsewhere took place." just in Tommy Westfall's mind, then that means that there's a significant amount of NBC shows that also are just in Tommy Westfall's mind. Uh-huh. It's come to be called the Tommy Westfall hypothesis or the Tommy Westfall universe. Well, multiverse. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it just spreads and spreads and spreads. And there's a really good, this uh, paste article called Tommy's World, the TV legacy of St. Elsewhere's Tommy Westfall universe is pre- pretty much the definitive outside post on it. Yeah. And um, it lays out a pretty good thread of how shows are connected. And since they're connected, that means that they're all taking place in the mind of this boy with autism, Tommy Westfall. Right. And it goes a little something like this. Uh, the doc- Some of the doctors from St. Elsewhere went to Cheers one time. Okay. So that means Cheers is in Tommy Westfall's mind. Uh, Frazier... Was a spinoff of Cheers. Check. So that means Frasier isn't real. 
Yeah. You getting this? We don't need to say that after each one, do we? I think it really drives the point home. If we uh, the John Larroquette show, um, which was actually pretty good. John Larroquette's great. Mm-hmm. And that show was very underrated. Uh, but the lead character played by John uh, Larroquette was John Hemingway. Um, he called in one time on Frasier's talk show. Yeah. On Frasier. He was one of the call-ins. Okay. As that character. Right. Fake. So, so now John Larroquette's universe. Right. Is in Tommy Westfall's mind. That's right. So yeah. on the John Larroquette show itself, they mention, uh, Yo-Yo Dine as a company. Um, a tech company. Right. Yeah. And in Star Trek, Yo-Yo Dine, uh, made technology used by the Enterprise crew. Yo-Yo Dine. Right? Right. Yo-Yo Dine. So that means Star Trek is in Tommy Westfall's mind. That's right. Yo-Yo Dine was also appears again in, uh, Angel, the TV show, Josh Whedon's Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, it was part of the, uh, I think he was a client of the law firm Wolfram and Hart on right. Angel. Okay. And then Wolfram and Hart, um, was, was representation to another tech company called Waylon Utani, which made tech on the TV show Firefly. Yeah, things are getting deep now. Right, so now <laughs> Firefly is in Tommy Westfall's mind as well. Uh, then, Wayland yutani ship uh, was in a spaceship graveyard on the series uh, in Britain, Red Dwarf. Right. And then bring it home. And then the TARDIS is in the hangar bay of the ship Red Dwarf on the show. So that means that Firefly, Red Dwarf... And then Doctor Who are all in the mind of Tommy Westfall because all of them are connected back to St. Elsewhere. And, and as the author of this Paste article points out, this is a normal thread. Yeah. It's spread to something like more than 400 TV shows being implicated as being in the imagination of Tommy Westfall. Yeah, I think the last count... I saw was 419 shows. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, which, you know, if they just get one more, then all of a sudden it's a weed theory. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, pretty tell him, great. Tell them about John Munch, though. He's like the all-star character from Tommy Westfall Universe. Oh, right. That was uh, Belzer's character on Homicide Life on the Street. Right. And... That was apparently a spinoff from St. Elsewhere. It was related to it somehow. Yeah, I think so, officially related uh but then munch was on a bunch of different shows yeah like his character not just the guy who played him yeah but he got he just popped up in different shows all over the place not even necessarily just on nbc oh yeah he was on x-files and that was fox wasn't it yeah uh law and order uh the he was on the wire yeah uh and he was on 30 rock yeah so, so Munch, Munch is just sitting there since he was already connected to St. Elsewhere. Any show he pops up on, he's obviously in the same universe as St. Elsewhere, which again is in Tommy Westfall's mind. So most of the television in the United States doesn't is, exist. Come, you know, it doesn't exist <laughs> except in the mind of a, uh, a boy with autism who likes his snow globe back in 1988. I wonder how much of that was I mean, not pre-planned, but... Zero, from what I understand. Well, they clearly meant to show, though, that St. Elsewhere was a figment of his imagination. Right. But I don't think they even stopped and thought, oh, well, that like means what other Cheers shows. is, too. Right. You know? <laughs> wow. Well, and then most of that stuff came after St. Elsewhere, too. So I wonder right. then if someone kind of ran with it, like if there's this inside cabal and... Hollywood and the WGA, right. where people are trying to like I'm sure. tie these things together. Still. It's like putting a Wilhelm scream in. Yeah, which we did incorrectly. Very we famously. tried once. <laughs> tried. Double thumbs up from Jerry. <laughs> <That was> so <laughs> funny. Well, yeah, that was that was just that was an SYSK gym. Yep. Uh, you got anything else? No, sir. Well, if you want to know more about TV fan theories, you can go find them on the internet. So or go hey, look. Send one in though, if you have one that we didn't talk about yeah a good one though we defined what a fan theory is okay so a good one yeah and nothing from lost yeah yeah just don't bother uh if you already said all that stuff so since i said i already said all that stuff it's time for listener mail i'm gonna call this hidden whiskey uh remember our live show in vancouver we Mm -hmm. talked about the canadian club had a very special promo in the 80s where they hid cases of whiskey all over the world like a big uh, scavenger hunt. And 
not all of that whiskey was found. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. So this uh, guy, Chris Ortloff, writes in about that. He said one of them was hidden in Lake Placid, New York, a year before the 1980 Olympics, and supposedly was never found. And a few years ago, more than three decades later, my mother picked up the trail when she discovered that it was possibly still out there. Nice. I love it. This guy's mom was like, what? Free whiskey? <laughs> I think she was just like, sounds like an adventure. Sure. You know? I'm just kidding. Uh, or, you know, maybe she wanted the free whiskey, too. Um, <laughs> a fan of uh, cryptic crossword puzzles, word games, and snowshoeing, the allure was too much for her to pass up. Oh, well, there you have it. Yeah. Plus, she really liked whiskey. <laughs> she tracked down a man in Connecticut who had previously searched for it, spoke with customer service at Canadian Club, even. And with a couple of other leads, she spent months turning over the clues, checking current and historical maps, and hiking through the woods and fields around Lake Placid. Love this guy's yeah. mom. Yeah. Um, I sat down with her a few times uh, with my thinking cap on in hopes of unraveling the mystery, as did many of her friends and relatives. We have lots of research and speculation amassed as a result. And I was really kind of nervous reading this. I was like, she found it. Right. She didn't find it. No. Um, sadly, after all the effort and intrigue, we still have no idea where it is. Uh, maybe some kids took it years ago. Could be completely buried by leaves and twigs by now. Uh, or maybe it's still waiting to be found and someone else can crack the case, so to speak. Blame it on leaves and twigs. <laughs> uh, if you or any listeners want a chance of some by now vintage Canadian whiskey, though, or at the very least, an enriching walk through the pristine northern New York wilderness... The clues, as originally printed in the CC ad, are as follows. And then he gave them to me. So you can just look that up on the internet. <laughs> They're out there. <laughs> it's really long. you them to yourself? Well, I mean, I can't read them all. It's oh, like, super long. Get out your decoder pins. Uh, happy hunting, and do share one with me if you find it. That is from Chris Ortloff. Thanks, Ortloff. We appreciate that. You have the last name of a person who's only called by their last name. And Mrs. Ortloff, or... <clears throat> Uh, at the very least, your mom. I don't know if that's her name. Madam. Madam Ortloff. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. The great e- explorer and adventurer. That's how she shall forever be known. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ortloff and Madam Ortloff. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us to tell us something cool that your mom's done, we want to hear that kind of thing. Just in time for Mother's Day, too. Yeah. Uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or Josh Um Clark. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know or slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 